This is Janelle Wood, and you are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. Well, welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and you are listening in for season six, where we've been starting off each month with a different young woman sharing her faith story and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and Christianity. This month, we're recording episodes for Rachel. Rachel brought up a lot of stuff. In fact, just to give some context to this conversation we're going to have today, one of her questions that she brought up in that first conversation that we shared this month was, um, she said, how do Christians across many flavors of faith bridge the gap of competition between faith styles? How does she, as a very liberal-leaning Christian, still a hippie, I think those were her words, how can she love and get along with her Christian brothers and sisters who are much more conservative or orthodox-leaning? I think she mentioned Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons. Um, Instead of being driven apart, what are the essentials and the non-essentials? That was one of her questions. We also talked about whether the deity of Christ is important to believe as a Christian. She mentioned Richard Rohr and following an orthodox view of Christianity. Um, I would just encourage you as a listener, if you uh, want more context, please go back and listen to that conversation for a more in-depth view of where Rachel started this journey at. Um, And don't stay there. Come come and listen to these episodes as well. Uh, But she's a very thoughtful person, and I know she'd be here if she could. Um, Unfortunately, she's in the middle of finals. So instead, she sent me some questions to ask today's very special guest, and to be honest, after that first first conversation with Rachel, I have some questions of my own today. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Paul Copan, a Christian theologian, analytic philosopher, apologist, and author. He is currently a professor at the Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida and holds the Endowed Pledger Fa- Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics. He is author or editor of over 40 books, including works such as Is God a Moral Monster? And the more recent, Is God a Vindictive Bully? He has also contributed essays to over 50 books, both scholarly and popular, and he has authored a number of articles in professional journals. Paul is married to Jacqueline. Together they have six children. Paul Copan, welcome to the Finding Something Real podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on your program. (laughs) Uh, It's such an honor to have you here. And is it okay if I just call you Paul? Because I know you're doctor. Okay. (laughs) I have a ton of questions to ask you. um, But before we dive in, I wanted to give you the opportunity. Um, I'd love for you to share anything about one thing that you want the audience today to, to hear that you've done, if it's a book, if it's a ministry, if it's something you're involved in, One thing that they could find out more about you after this conversation is over, uh, that would be, you know, something that you would love to share with them. One of the things, one of the things that my wife says is that I'm, I often tackle the very difficult questions. I'm pretty mild mannered and easygoing, but I get into the, you know, kind of the difficult questions. A lot of people don't want to talk about. Uh, So I've written books on, you know, on just challenging topics uh, that um, that that Christians have to face and uh, sometimes don't want to talk about, and so I plunge into things like Old Testament ethical challenges and uh, and and deal with some of those hard issues that uh, that I think need to be talked about and that uh, that non Christians often bring up and often even within the church people have questions about, and so it's good to be ha- good to have direct 
uh, honest, um, humble conversations with one another. Uh, and so, uh, so yeah, that's the sort of thing that I encourage and want to, uh, to in, in, encourage people to look at if they want to see some of the books that I've worked on that I try to tackle some of these tough issues and, and do the best I can to navigate through, through those, uh, those challenging issues. Mm. Well, you mentioned that you're pretty mild mannered. Um, and uh, I can see that. And I've also listened to you. It's funny, right before we jumped on here, I told you I was listening to you. At, I can't remember the guy you were uh, debating with on Justin Browderly's podcast. Randall Rouser. I listened to that episode. I didn't know it was you, of course. <laughs> but when it first came out, because this is a question that even as a Christian, I wrestled with. What, you know, the, the question of uh, how do you reconcile uh, what I read in the Old Testament with what I read about uh, Jesus in the New Testament. My husband and I, we have a daily practice of reading one chapter in the Old Testament and one chapter in the New. And that's been a very formative and beautiful thing that we've done over the last several years of our marriage. But I will say there are times when I step away from a passage and I'll be like, how can people say some of the stuff that they say from the pulpit, you know, about God's character when you've got this uh, over and over in uh, the Old Testament. So before we dive into how you became a voice, uh, a prominent voice in, you know, discussing God's character in the Old Testament, um, would you share a little bit about your faith journey and how you even became a Christian? Um, I, yeah, I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad came from Ukraine, my mother from Latvia, and uh, grew up in a family of seven kids and always had a sense of the the love of God and was you know, surrounded by uh, you know, wonderful influences and by in my parents and, and uh, just had a wonderful growing up experience and you know, but it wasn't until my high school years that I started to take seriously the claims of Jesus Christ uh, to take the authority of Scripture more seriously and to see that. You know, through studying apologetics, a defense, a defense of the Christian faith, that the Christian faith was not something that was merely, uh, you know, something that my parents believed and just passed on to me. But this is something that was rooted in reality. Uh, this is the story of reality, uh, the one story to rule them all. And so I uh, realized that this is something that I could embrace with intellectual integrity. That it was the kind of uh, worldview that was not just something intellectual, but would meet the meet the needs of our our hearts too, uh, in terms of forgiveness and dealing with uh, guilt and shame and uh, the pursuit of significance and purpose and so forth. Uh, so I uh, I just grew in, into that understanding and uh, through you know, just became a uh, studied, did an undergrad in biblical studies and uh, did further work in theology and biblical studies as well as philosophy and my graduate uh, and doctoral work. And so just kind of a natural unfolding that I kind of began looking at apologetics, uh, ended up getting a degree in philosophy. And then I've utilized a lot of that uh, work in, in philosophy to direct it in the, in the, in the, in the defense of the Christian faith. So it's been a, a, a wonderful journey and uh, that, but that's the a little bit of the, uh, the, the story uh, for me. And uh, so hopefully that gives a little bit of perspective. Yeah. How did you become the go-to voice on the old Testament? Uh, I hear people quoting you all the time. In mm. fact, I think we 
I initially reached out to you because I heard Frank Turek uh, talking about you in one of his presentations. And I thought, mm. I've heard Paul's name a million times. We need to get him on here <laughs> if he'll come. Yeah, so, well, I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I, I have always been interested in biblical studies. I've been reading through the scriptures for decades. And uh, just when the, of course, after September 11th and the, the new atheists, uh, made a big splash uh, condemning not just Islam, but all religion as being pernicious and evil and dangerous and so forth. I noticed a lot of these critiques of the Old Testament God by these uh, new atheists uh, were really flawed and superficial and didn't really dig into uh, a more enriched understanding of the Old Testament God and even issues like slavery and warfare. Uh, or like, as I like to put it, servitude. It's, you know, slavery conjures up all sorts of things related to the Civil War, pre-Civil War era. So anyway, I just wrote a response in the journal Philosophia Christi, and uh, that eventually developed into the book Is God a Moral Monster? And I realized there are a lot of things that could be said, and not a whole lot of people were writing on this. There were scholars who were touching on things here and there, but nothing really uh, in a consolidated uh, accessible way that could give people tools to work with as they navigated through some of those difficult uh, waters of the Old Testament. So that led into the uh, book, uh, Did God Really Command Genocide, that I co-authored with Matthew Flanagan, and then uh, that turned into, and then building on that, uh, and also critiquing some of these critics from within, more progressive voices within the Christian faith, uh, you know, Greg Boyd and and others. Uh, that I uh, brought up some of these issues in the context of their dichotomizing between what they call the textual God and the actual God, that the even if it says, thus says the Lord in the Old Testament, they will say, well, that's not necessarily the Lord speaking. It depends on if it's kind and loving or harsh and severe. Mm -hmm. It's harsh and severe. Couldn't be. That's the textual God. That's the voice of the ancient Near Eastern author or uh, narrator and not the voice of God. Uh, who is revealed in Jesus Christ, the actual God, you know, who says, Father, forgive them, and so forth. And so I, in my book, not only tackle issues like Elisha and the bears, the imprecatory Psalms, the flood of Noah, the firstborn of Egypt, and, and issues like you know, warfare, servitude, and, 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 the, and, and women in the Old Testament, uh, building on what I've done before. But I also push back on some of these critics from within, as I call them, uh, who I think are undermining the authority of the Old Testament, who are undermining the credibility of God's revelation in the Old Testament, and uh, and and you are using a a very uh, what you say an overly narrow and misleading lens that doesn't take into account the full range of what is said in the New Testament itself. There are a lot; it's a lot of selective reading, a lot of selective scripture quoting, and so I push back on on that as well. Mm. Yeah, I read an article that you wrote um, a couple of years ago. I think you were on a road trip and you stopped at a, several churches. Is that correct? Yeah, we yeah we visited. Yeah, we were. I think the one that I wrote about was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, when we were on the on a road trip. Correct. Yeah, and you quoted somebody in there. I thought it was an excellent article. We'll link it in the show notes. Um, but she said there were some, and I think you were quoting evangelical Roger Olson and his mm -hmm. research. It sounded it sounded like. That there are some um, downplays of doctrinal authority or orthodoxy um, that sees feelings and ethics as central 
And then there were, I think, eight different um, markers of progressivism in terms of mm -hmm. Christianity. And they were disinterest in doctrine and historical uh, relics. Is that right? Historical. <laughs> I can't read my own writing here. <laughs> uh, focus on inclusion and social justice. Accommodation to trends in the academic culture. Um, let's see. Uh, elevating inclusiveness uh, to an absolute in the church. Abandoning sin, repentance, salvation, um, and judgment. Um, implicit, implicit universalism and abandonment of a final judgment. Uh, the Bible uh, not being the divinely inspired final authority for faith and practice and abandonment of the supernatural. And it's interesting because as I was reading all of that, I was thinking of the conversation that I had with Rachel to begin with. And, um, you know, I, I would say if she was here today, she would probably uh, agree with most of those, uh, that mm -hmm. that's kind of where she's at in her faith journey. At least when I, I spoke with her a few months ago, um, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you might get to hear her reaction uh, now after having a bunch of conversations here in a few weeks. But um, I just found all of that really fascinating because that was exactly where this young woman who's co-hosting these episodes with me, um, where she might be. And, and the only thing that I, I kind of felt like, well, maybe she wouldn't be at is uh, abandonment of the supernatural, um, mm -hmm. because I know she talked a little bit about believing in, in some of that. Um, but here are some questions that Rachel sent me because she is invested in these conversations and, mm -hmm. um, and I love that she's very thoughtful. Um, mm -hmm. and so yeah, she's coming from that lens and I love that you talk <laughs> to people in the fold who have those kind of, uh, that kind of view, but here's one of her questions. She says, it has often been said that the entire Bible is about Jesus and I, meaning Rachel, 100% believe that statement. How can we look at the actions of Old Testament God through the lens of Jesus's love, mercy, and justice while grappling with some of the more gruesome stories displayed? Well, a couple of things, and I appreciate that question, Rachel. Uh, look forward to meeting you sometime. <laughs> uh, I, I would say, uh, uh, first of all, <clears throat> uh, sometimes what we read in the Old Testament isn't the way that may appear on the surface. And one of the things that I'm often writing about, those gruesome passages, uh, <clears throat> you know, man, woman, young and old uh, in, in warfare passages. Well, frankly, women, children, the elderly <clears throat> are, are typically not in those sorts of scenarios, even though it uses that kind of a language. And I go into a lot of detail in my in my books on that. Uh, so, so the question we ought to be asking too is are we reading the text correctly. And, and I think that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging people to go to look more deeply rather than doing a superficial read of it. And, uh, and for example, when you read these texts about having utterly destroyed the, uh, the enemies, uh, the Canaanites, uh, well, one thing is that this is part of an ancient Near Eastern genre of war texts where there's a lot of trash talk that's used. Uh, so it's kind of like our modern day. We totally annihilated that basketball team. Uh, we totally, you know, we totally slaughtered those guys. Well, that's how things went in the ancient Near East. And the Bible also includes that kind of a language. And that would have been understood in that vein. So when we look at these texts, we say, okay, well, maybe I need to get a little bit more familiar with that. And, and one of the things that I mentioned is that alongside that language of, quote, utter destruction, however that word is to be translated, 
It's not always to be translated that way. Um, that you also have lots of survivors, for example. Um, and, and basically the word utterly destroy simply means yeah, a, a victory <laughs> uh, that the Israel had a victory over their enemy and, and we're not told about how many people were left around. Uh, just It's just an indication of victory. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, make sure that we're reading and understanding those texts properly. Uh, secondly, it's important to understand that there are some things that are not, you know, I, I, my verse that I use, kind of the key verse that I use in my book is God of Indictive Bully is Romans eleven twenty two, which says, behold then the kindness and severity of God. Now that's in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament, but it echoes what we see in the Old Testament about being God being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And we see, you know, but God is also one who will not leave the guilty unpunished. So we see those two things side by side. And we often see, and it's often ignored, uh, that God is frequently, rather than just obliterating the, you know, the people like Israel in rebellion, God is renewing his covenant with them. He is seeking to win them back. He's sending prophets to warn them. He's renewing his covenants and covenant with them. So God is always pursuing God is always active in, in in seeking to restore his people uh so that so that the that that abandonment and apostasy are not the final word that God has his purposes and he's going to accomplish them and God is often you know God says things like how I've been in, in the book of Ezekiel uh, how I've been hurt by their adulterous hearts uh, God is often grieved and is lamenting the departure of his people from his ways. So we see a God who weeps, a God, as it were, a God who grieves, a God who mourns, a God who is uh, so dismayed at the rebellion of his people. So we see that same sort of tenderheartedness uh, in, of course, Jesus, who is distressed uh, at the people who are wandering about without, like sheep without a shepherd, uh, we, we we read. And so, uh, but Jesus is also someone who overturns tables in, in the temple. He get out, gets out his uh, whip and, uh, and, and drives people out. He uh, he is also, we read, and here's a, here's a passage for you in, in, in Jude 5, which is a Christological understanding. Talked about you know, Rachel saying, yeah, we, how do we read Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, here's a, here's a passage. Jude 5, our best manuscripts say, Jesus, after he had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus is engaged in those very judgments in the Old Testament. Uh, the same sort of thing happens in uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The, that rock that is going with the Israelites, bringing them through the Red Sea and so forth, uh, against whom they rebel, we read later on in this uh, chapter, is Jesus. Uh, that rock was Christ. So he is the one who is leading them, who is also exasperated with the people uh, of Israel. So, you know, it's again a Trinitarian understanding of, 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 the, of the divine leading of the Israelites uh, you know, out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. But we see Jesus who threatens in Revelation, in red letters, uh, he threatens Jezebel uh, to cast her on a bed of sickness and says that he will strike dead her followers, this false teacher's followers, because they're misleading uh, the, the people of God. And so there are these very severe passages. We, we, we read about Jesus who's both gentle and severe, like Aslan, who's good but not safe in the Chronicles of Narnia. 
So we see Jesus who is, uh, as uh, Matthew 12 says, Jesus is one who will not snuff out a smoldering wick or break a bruised reed. And he says, come to me, you who are weary, I will give you rest. Well, we also see Jesus saying, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, if the, you know, if the miracles performed in you had been performed in Tyre and, you know, in, in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And so he's saying that it will be much more severe for them than it was for these ancients, uh, because they are here encountered, uh, encountering the incarnate Christ. And so you have this, uh, this very strong imagery. So Revelation 12, Jesus is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Again, the severity. We've seen the kindness, the gentleness. There's also the severity. Uh, people are crying out in Revelation chapter 6 uh, because they're, they fear the wrath of the Lamb and call them the rocks to fall upon them. So there's also terror that is involved here. Uh, you know, for those who are willing, those who are humble, Jesus welcomes and receives and so forth. But there's also a severity to Jesus as well, that you Jesus isn't uh, just coming to uh, give nice words and spin up parables and, and wise sayings. Jesus calls on his audience to respond to him, to embrace him, to follow him. And he says that uh, his is the narrow way that leads to life and that few are those who find it. Mm. Wow. Um, a lot to unpack there. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. Um, I could keep going if you want. I just, no. uh, that was my introduction. <laughs> I know. Well, I wanted to follow up on a couple thoughts on that. Um, because what I hear you saying is, first of all, there's some passages in scripture that are probably exaggerated war texts that uh, they say everyone was killed, but it really probably wasn't all of them. But then I also hear you saying, and yet God is a God of love and justice, mercy and wrath and his ways are good either way, right? And th those things, I mean, clearly the flood happened. Clearly there's judgment to come, right? So right. And if and I, that judgment, yeah. and that judgment is sent with a grieved heart. God is reluctant to do that. He's grieved, he's sorrowful, um, but God doesn't end there. He He rebuilds and, uh, and, and you see the picture of a new creation after the flood that there is, you know, that God has not given up on humanity. He simply finishes what human beings have begun in their violence and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it's important to keep those sorts of things in mind um, in, in, as the broader, as part of the broader context. But anyway, keep going. Sorry. You no, know, I was just gonna, mm -hmm. you know, some thoughts of mine that have come up because I, you know, I'm not a scholar. <laughs> and the people that listen to this podcast, if you are a scholar, I'm sorry, but I'm just gonna say probably not either. Uh, some of them maybe will be one day. I don't know. Um, you know, it's, to make sense of some of this, I think one question that often comes to my mind in following up to this discussion is, okay, uh, maybe what I'm reading in Joshua or what I'm reading in Jeremiah, it wasn't nearly as horrific. I mean, my husband and I were just reading in Jeremiah the other day, and Jeremiah is telling the people, if you go to Egypt, all of you are going to die. Mm -hmm. And they say, basically screw you we're going anyway and then they take him with them right and then mm -hmm. god god goes you know through uh, jeremiah he's sharing uh basically there will be a little remnant left but basically you all are gonna die because you disobeyed me um there's a lot of there's a lot of wrath in there 
and a lot that doesn't make sense to the modern reader, at least to me, you know, sometimes when I'm reading that and I'm a Christian and I love, I love Jesus and I'm still, you know, I still find myself wrestling with some of those troubling passages. But I think the question, as I'm rambling on here is, uh, you know, how, how do I know what to believe then? If I, if I hear someone who is a scholar like yourself say, well, then there's some passages that have been exaggerated. Maybe it wasn't really that bad. How do I know what passages to actually take as, yeah, and what passages to go, well, maybe that was just an exaggeration of those times? Yeah. Well, uh, there's uh, what I tell people when they're asking me is, you know, when they say, shouldn't I take the Bible literally? I say, well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, I, 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 I use the term, take the Bible literarily. There are some things that are intended to be exaggerations, intended to be symbolic, like the, the majority of the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. So you say, hey, that's that's not literal. Uh, you know, therefore, I question the authenticity of God's revelation, uh, that this is somehow misleading. Well, no, we, we talk in, you know, that we see a lot of poetry, the trees in the field clapping their hands. We see all sorts of things, the mountain skipping as rams. Well, you know, we, we understand that this is poetic talk and we don't have to say, well, that's, uh, that's not literal. Therefore, it's inferior. Sometimes you'll have like Exodus 14, which tells the, of the deliverance from Egypt. And then Exodus 15 is the story in poetic form. And so you'll have symbolism and and uh, figures of speech and so forth, and 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 they're just different ways of speaking the truth of God. Sometimes it's in a historical, straightforward manner. Other times it's a describing something historical, but in a highly poetic uh, and and literary fashion. So so it, 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 this takes homework. It takes some digging, uh, and I think we get some clues even as we read a book like Joshua, where it says. You know, you know, of course, you know, talk about the land having rest from from war and so forth. Sounds great. You know, it sounds utopian. But then you get to the end of the book and you see, oh, there are many nations that still are in the land that need to be driven out. Uh, so but it, so if you understand that when it uses this sweeping language, you know, left no survivor, et cetera, et cetera. And then you read sometimes a chapter or two later that there are lots of these survivors. They're, it seems like they're back in town, that they're there, that they haven't gone. Uh, or you read Judges chapter one, which gives a more realistic setting on the ground where we're told, again, just follows Joshua, you know, the Israelites could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. They could not drive them out. What's happening? Well, if you understand that uh, that the book of Joshua is is uh, is a, an, a war text and that is highly exaggerated and utilizes this hyperbolic uh, language, then you don't see Judges chapter one as a contradiction to the book of Joshua. So it a lot of times it means just comparing things. And, and one of the things that's interesting about the scriptures is that as you read these war texts, it also mentions alongside, uh, you know, the, you know, quote, no survivor uh, mentions lots of survivors that happen to show up a chapter or two later at the end of the book. And that's different from like the Egyptians or the uh, you know, the uh, the Assyrians or something, which used this sweeping language, no survivors, they're non-existent. Well, there's a, a bit more realism that we see in the scriptures, ancient Near Eastern war text uh, language that does include survivors. 
And so, so I, I think it's just a matter of continuing to do your homework, continuing to check out the scriptures. And, you know, people say, well, what about Greg Boyd? He's, he's, um, you know, isn't he another authoritative voice on how we should look at the Old Testament? Well, <clears throat> uh, I, I think that Greg is not treating the Old Testament as the New Testament authorities act are actually treating it. Uh, Greg is actually creating a wider chasm between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Jesus and Moses. He, he says Jesus, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount is, is basically rejecting uh, or repudiating the law of Moses. No, he's not repudiating the law, of Moses, the law of Moses. He's actually repudiating an abuse of the law of Moses. In fact, later on in that same book, Jesus says, you know, these authorities, these, you know, sit in the seat of Moses. And he says, don't do what they do, but do what they say. And namely, what they say from the law of Moses and Jesus saying, you know, go show yourself to the high priest as the, as the law of Moses says, etc. So he's not repudiating it. And so, and also I, I would continue to read in Greg Boyd's uh, book, uh, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. You know, I'd say, I'd, I'd ask, well, what about this passage? What about that passage? And I'd look in the index. Nope, nope, not there. Just dozens of times. A lot of these key texts are ignored by Greg Boyd. And or simply he's misreading them, uh, you know, in other places. But but it, again, you get the picture of some some significant cherry picking going on here, rather than looking as at, as holistically as you can at these texts, even if it means you don't come to a perfect uh, final resolution, but you've got some ragged edges here. I'd rather have some of those ragged edges here and leave things in a bit of tension and and not saying I, I've resolved it all. Uh, than to kind of have this nice tidy package, but then realize, and then, it, you know, you see that there are all sorts of passages that are not being addressed that actually undermine that very position. So, so I'm trying to bring together these things in a much more holistic way that take into account these, uh, these differing features and, uh, and, and, and try to piece them all together. So, so for what that's worth, uh, but I think that it's important to, that we try to treat the New Testament as the you know, or treat the Old Testament as the New Testament authorities did. And I don't see Greg Boyd doing that. He's only arguing for a tiny sliver of kind of a, a hermeneutical or interpretive principle. Basically, Jesus from the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You're loving your enemies. Well, Jesus doesn't look like he's, quote, loving his enemies, according to what Greg Boyd says, when he's driving out money changers from the temple, or when, when he says that he's going to strike dead Jezebel's followers, or uh, Matthew 18, 6, if someone leads one of these little ones astray, it'd be better to have a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. You see, when we look at the wrath and anger of God, I think so often we miss out on the fact that it is precisely because God is love that he is jealous that people are led away from, they're led away, they're led astray into idolatry, false gods, and basically worship is God calling people to align themselves with reality, to run after these false gods. And of course, the book of Jeremiah is repeatedly uh, exhorting the people not to run after these vain idols, not to try to drink water from these broken cisterns that have no water and so forth. That you know, so he's he's reminding them of the vanity of these idols, and and that's what God is doing. That He is exerting His concern. He's speaking with a a deep 
passion or zeal, you know, the same word jealousy is, is you know, zeal, uh, that, that God desires people to be proper, properly aligned with him so that they aren't going to be ruining their lives, wasting their lives, aligning themselves uh, with, with you know, ideologies and false representations of reality. Uh, so, so, and I, I like to tell the story of Miroslav Volf, who was a theologian at Yale University. And when he was in the former Yugoslavia, he talked about how his own people were shelled day in and day out during the uh, war in the former Yugoslavia, that uh, three million people were displaced, uh, villages ravaged. Uh, he said, you know, uh, women you know, brutalized beyond description. And he said, do you think that God just affirmed their basic, the basic goodness of the perpetrators? He says, wasn't God profoundly angry at them? And he said that, you know, that he used to reject the notion of a God who is angry, contrary to Richard Rohr, uh, you know, who, who's, you know, I mean, actually in line with Richard Rohr in that instance, where, you know, not, not that angry God, don't give me that angry God. Miroslav Wolf said he didn't believe in a God who got angry, but he said, but through that experience, when he himself went through that war, he said he couldn't believe in a God who didn't get angry at these sorts of things. He said, God is not wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because he is love. And I think so often we lose sight of those sorts of things that just seems capricious and unprincipled. Uh, it, you know, and, and, and God warns people. It's not as though God is saying, uh, this will happen if you do this. If you cross that line, this will happen. But God is also one who continues to pursue people and embrace them. But there's a time when God finally says, that's enough. Hmm. Okay, so just one more follow-up question to that as a non-academic. <laughs> this may just be out of my own ignorance. But if me or someone like me was reading the Old Testament and I never came to a deeper conclusion that these were war texts and there was exaggeration here, poetry here, this here. All I saw was that there were times when God ordered the annihilation of some different people groups. Can I reconcile that with the God of the New Testament? I have my own thoughts on that, but I'm just wondering for the girl listening who maybe has right. a question about that. Um, because... Uh, I, I read some of the comments on your um, on the interview you did with Justin Brierley, and uh, you told me the name of the guy. I can't remember. Randall Rouser. Uh, Randall Rouser. It was compelling. But the whole time, and this was one of the criticisms I read too, but it, in the, it reminded me of what I was thinking when I was listening to that. What if it, those weren't war texts? And they, it, it really happened. What if that really happened that way? Um, is that still... Uh, is God's character still as amazing as uh, as the thread of Scripture says He is? What are your thoughts on that? Okay. And obviously, you know more yeah. about that than me. But do you hear yeah. what the question is? Sure, I do. Okay, friend. If you're enjoying this episode, you may also enjoy exclusive bonus content each month. Finding something real is a podcast that has some costs associated with it. We have a website, monthly subscriptions to stay organized. We design things. We like to pay an assistant producer who keeps things going around here, that kind of stuff. We're not in the business of trying to make money, but we are in the business of wanting to keep this show going and be sustainable. So we use Patreon. And if you haven't heard of it, Patreon is the best place for creators to build memberships by providing exclusive access to their work and a deeper connection with their communities. Each month, patrons who support Finding Something Real get a bonus episode where we recap the month's episodes. Often those episodes feature our co-hosts and they 
will often share what this journey was like. There's other perks over there too, and it's easy to get involved. Just go to findingsomethingreal.com and click support at the top of the page. We'd love to have you over there in our Patreon community. Hi friend, this podcast is sponsored in part by Faithful Counseling. Life is full of ups and downs, unexpected twists and turns, and sometimes we struggle with all that can come our way. Faithful Counseling will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist who is also a practicing Christian. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And as someone with a master's degree in counseling psychology and whom at various times in the past 20 or so years has benefited from seeing a professional therapist, I know the value that professional counseling can bring because we all need someone to talk with and Faithful Counseling can help. Please visit faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real to sign up for professional faith-based counseling. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. There's also a special offer for finding something real listeners to get 10% off your first month at faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real. Thanks again to Faithful Counseling for being a sponsor of this episode. Uh, you know, there are some interpreters, um, people like John Calvin, uh, or in our modern day, the New Testament scholar, uh, Greg Beal, and, you know, whose work I have appreciated. And, you know, but he, he sees, he says that, you no, know, what's going on in the Old Testament is actually kind of a unique divine judgment that we could call genocide. And, you know, but it's not racially motivated. It's simply rooted in the kinds of behaviors that the Canaanites engaged in of, um, you know, of incest, bestiality, ritual prostitution, and infant sacrifice, uh, that it was a kind of a divine corporate uh, punishment um, on the on the Canaanites. And so that God intended it for, to be a, uh, you know, utterly obliterating the Canaanite peoples. Uh, now I disagree with it, and the more I study it, the the you know the less and less I see that. But um, you know, but th there are some people who say this is the a unique event in the in biblical history, where a certain people and God waits a certain amount of time. He waits over half a millennium to bring judgment upon these people, as Genesis fifteen says, and that He is uh, then when judgment falls, the time is ripe. It would have been wrong for God to command it. It would have been it would have been wrong for the Israelites to go in any earlier to to take to take the land, and uh, which was being simultaneously given as a gift to the Israelites, just as this was simultaneously a judgment against the Canaanites. Um, so, so I think you know, there are, you know, um, interpreters who say, well, don't let this be a stumbling block. Uh, we see that Paul and Stephen, like in Acts 7, Stephen, Paul, Acts 13, uh, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, talking about these wars and God granting victory to the Israelites and uh, and, and Rahab, for example, not being punished along with those who are disobedient. Uh, that this is a a just punishment, and as harsh as this may seem to our modern ears, uh, it is a you know it, it was a just punishment, and 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 when you look at it, and I talk about this in my book, even though I don't take this as a quote genocide uh, event, uh, but uh, but there it, when you look at the 
what hangs in the balance. Fundamentally, Israel's identity, if it is compromised, if you know, it's if its mission is compromised, this means salvation does not come to all the peoples of the earth, including the Canaanites. So there is something in the short term, namely the Canaanites who are affected because of their horrible behavior and their pernicious influence that God, you know, that God commands this, although the primary command is to drive them out rather than to kill uh, by three to one. And, you know, but, but even so, uh, you know, there is a cosmic battle that is raging. The Israelites have to maintain at least some semblance of a, an identity uh, to carry forth the mission that God has given to them so that when the Messiah comes, a lot of these practices, these institutions, these holy days, these rituals and so forth will make sense in, you know, at, you know, you know in, in the nation of Israel with Jesus as the Messiah who call, is the culmination of the fulfillment of these things. So, so yeah, there are some interpreters and I appreciate some of the points that they make uh, that it's not as though it's a, a gross, um, you know, you know, horrific contradiction that can't be reconciled. I think they do attempt to make, rec you know, and they make some, I think, valid points in terms of attempting to bring these things together, even though I disagree that this is a commanded genocide. We just, you know, I just, as I keep reading, it's just doesn't look that way. And um, so, so I'd say there are uh, scholars who do make this effort to reconcile the kindness of God and the severity of God. And we, but we, and we see Jesus who was affirming the Old Testament scriptures who, and many of course would recognize Jesus as being the most spiritually attuned, morally aware person, of course, whoever, whoever lived. And, and here is the, you know, here he is falling in line with say the judgments of the Old Testament, you know, the, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah or Tyre and Sidon and so forth. Jesus repeats those things and he's saying, it's even going to be worse for you. So Jesus is ramping it up rather than toning it down. So so keep these things in mind. I think there is a an increased picture of divine love in what God is, the lengths and depths to which God is willing to go for our salvation, that God is willing to go so low to death on a cross and when you look at who Jesus is, what he has done, and his affirmation of what has gone on in the Old Testament, that Jesus says, the one who has seen me has seen the Father, and Jesus is engaged in those Old Testament judgments as well, as Jude 5 tells us, then we have to say, you know, if God is willing to show that kind of depth of love to die for his enemies, I should... I'm just going to trust him on those difficult Old Testament texts that I can't quite figure out or that seem seem problematic to me uh, and maybe just be an agnostic about these sorts of things and say, I'm not sure how to reconcile this, but I know this, that God has re clearly revealed himself in Jesus Christ, uh, that Jesus is one who has gone to the uttermost to incorporate us into God's family. And so therefore, if he's done that for me, then I can leave some of those difficult questions uh, that I can't figure out in 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 Jesus capable hands. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Um, this is a great follow up question to that. And it's another one that Rachel had. She says, as a Christian scholar of the Old Testament, how do you assess the difference between a law continuing into the New Testament, and us Christians at large, versus a law meant to be left behind? And 
kind of just immediately I thought of Rachel Held Evans and her book, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was Biblical Womanhood, that caused mm-hmm. quite a stir, you know, where mm-hmm. she's trying to use these different laws and Levitical mm-hmm. passages. You probably know more about this than mm-hmm. I do, but I remember the fallout from it, right? And she's yeah. saying, come on, what can we really trust here about the Bible? So I don't know that if that's where Rachel's coming from, but immediately that's what I, I thought of when she asked that question. Yeah. Yeah. I do wonder if Rachel Held Evans was actually trying to almost be playful about these things rather than making a serious theological point. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, I mean, she talks about these various views on marriage and so forth and, 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 and what is proper biblical sexuality and so forth. Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I think we do get real clarity in, in Genesis one and two, but, um, but, you know, there are some, you know, one of the things that I would help to, uh, or try to distinguish, and I got this from the Old Testament scholar Ian Proven, who said we ought to distinguish between the broader Old Testament vision, like Genesis one and two, the equality of male and female, the uh, you know uh, sexual relations between uh, a man and a woman in in marriage, uh, one man and one woman as one flesh for one lifetime, which Jesus affirms in in Matthew nineteen. Uh, so Jesus is very much stepping into that agreement uh, of the creation mandate, the creation order. Um, but there are also some things that Jesus, we, when we read uh, what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 8, the same chapter, uh, you know, uh, Matthew 19, he, he also says that there were some things that were the way they were from the beginning. You know, they were you know, allowed, allowed by Moses, like divorce. But this was not what was the ideal, but this is because of the hardness of human hearts that Moses permitted this in the law. So sometimes when we read certain things about the law, it does assume that people will sin. It does assume sometimes a, uh, a, an ancient Near Eastern culture that has certain taboos and so forth that seem a little odd to us related to blood and semen and so forth and, and, and impurities and, and so forth. We that doesn't square with our own modern day mindset. But you know, but so we see that there is a moral vision from the very beginning. And we also see that moral vision carrying over into the New Testament. But there are some things that relate to Israel as a nation, like you know, its, uh, its own ceremonial and civil laws, uh, you, know, jud- you know, judgments in court, and, uh, and also how do you know, dealing with things like the military, how should how should wars be uh, carried out and so forth. Obviously not something that carries over into the New Testament in any direct sense. But so so I talk about we having a lot of moral carryover in terms of those basic themes related, centered around loving God and loving others. Uh, but we also, and also that kind of same sexual ethic that we see from the very beginning carrying over into the, old, into the New Testament. But there are some things that are left behind, like uh, kosher laws, for example. Jesus declares all foods clean. We see that carried over, that God made all things good. Uh, you know, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that nothing is inherently unclean. Of course, if one has a conscience about it, then Paul says, refrain, don't violate your conscience. Uh, but we do see a significant amount of moral carryover into the New Testament. But there are differences that often relate to the the nature of the people of God, whether it's in the, in the Old Testament, uh, the you know, national uh, boundaried uh, Israel, 
that has kings and and uh, and 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 law courts and so forth, as opposed to the New Testament, which you have in which you have the interethnic people of God scattered throughout uh, these nations. So there's going to be a different way of of conducting uh, one's life as you know, conducting life in community as God's people, uh, respectively. So those are a few things that I would just say, just kind of just general parameters. Uh, but I do touch on some of those things in the Vindictive Bully book. Very good. Just one follow-up question to that. Thinking of the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. which I assume in my mind is part of that Old Testament moral vision that you're talking mm -hmm. about, right? Because mm -hmm. we still abide by all of them. Um, unless uh, I've heard a very popular current criticism saying we don't abide by one, um, which is the Sabbath. The Sabbath. I'd love your thoughts on that because I have my own. <laughs> okay. um, in fact, should I share mine? It's not going to sway yours. So here's my thought. Um, I kind of got swept up in some of that and tried to incorporate Sabbath here at my house, especially during COVID with my family mm -hmm. and um, was successful at it for a few days. Uh, that's it. Um, but, you know, I love the idea of it. And I kind of thought, wow, you know, you're right. Mm -hmm. We don't really follow that. And then um, one day my husband and I were reading um, uh, in the Old Testament. I think it was Isaiah. Whatever comes before Jeremiah. Was it Isaiah? Isaiah. Yep, yeah, it was Isaiah. And um, I, we were reading about the Sabbath and the command for Sabbath. And I said to my husband, I said, Man, it's so interesting. I said, because Jesus said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And then we mm -hmm. turn over to Matthew and guess what scripture we were reading that day. It was Jesus saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And I thought he is our Sabbath rest. He said, come mm -hmm. to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Therefore, our Sabbath is resting in him. And that's every day. But that's my take on it. Mm -hmm. I'm not a biblical scholar. I'd love to hear your yeah. point of view. Sure. I came yeah. up with that on my own. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think you're on to something. Uh, I, you know, and I, I touch on this in the, uh, I co-authored a, a biblical ethics book uh, called Introduction to Biblical Ethics, in which we uh, talk about the, the Sabbath. Uh, I, I do think you're right that, of course, the, the original Sabbath was, you know, sprang forth from the original creation in Genesis 1, uh, where God, you know, then rests, you know, chapter 2, rests on the Sabbath. Uh, that uh, that you know, and again to set this uh, precedent for uh, for his people, and then we come to the New Testament, and we have a new creation that comes. Uh, the resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. Jesus' bodily resurrection signals our own future resurrection uh, when the new heavens and the new earth come to being. But new creation has begun. If anyone's in Christ, Second Corinthians tells us there is a new creation. And so we enter into that rest, we enter into that new creation. We see that the Sabbath is not something that is a demand upon Gentiles. Uh, Paul, for example, in Colossians chapter two says, let no one judge your Sabbath. Uh, you know, that there, you know, that he, Paul says the Sabbath is a shadow of the substance that was to come, namely you know, Christ. We see the same sort of thing in Romans chapter 14, where Paul says that some people consider uh, one day as more special than another. Uh, some people consider them all alike. He says, let everyone be convinced in his own mind. So to enjoy the Sabbath, I think it's a very wise to have a Sabbath rest. 
uh, I've, I'm here in Oxford, England, and in January, I'll be back here for a sabbatical. Uh, so, uh, you know, yeah, there is that, you know, kind of rhythm of being able to take a break from the routines. And of course, I'll be busy writing and so forth, too. But uh, but interspersed with that, uh, times to rest and, and, and recover from the, uh, the pace of, uh, of, you know, being a professor and so on. Uh, and, and I think too, in our own rhythms, as you know, we find that it's good to have, say within a week to have uh, a time where we where we rest again, not, not that it's mandated. In fact, uh, Craig Blomberg, an, an Old Testament, a New Testament scholar says that in the early church, you didn't have any days off if you were say living in Rome as a Christian, you worked every day. Uh, you can say, "I'm sorry, my conscience doesn't allow me to uh, stop work on the on on the on the Sabbath or Sunday, uh, the Resurrection Day." Uh, no, you just worked, and you found places where you could try to get that rest that you you needed to uh, kind of recuperate and to uh, get into the the next the next day, the next week of of work. Uh, so, so that wasn't a luxury that uh, that a lot of people had in the uh, in the Mediterranean world outside of Israel. But uh, but I think that's that road, those rhythms are still good, still important. We need that rest. We uh, we need to be reminded of the discipline of rest, of silence, of solitude, even uh, that this is part of our own spiritual formation. And if we neglect that, it is to our detriment. Mm, yeah. All right. Final question from Rachel here. And then I, I had a couple more that hopefully we can get to. But I don't know. Um, she says on a more personal note, in your view, Paul, is the diversity of belief in the Christian community something to be encouraged or discouraged? Was the Bible designed to facilitate the inclusion of different aspects of belief? And going back to that original conversation with her where she talked about like Seventh-day Adventists on one spectrum and maybe Mormonism on the if you would talk about those kind of things yeah, uh, yeah. in this, yeah. Well, yeah, I would not consider Mormonism to be falling within the pale of orthodoxy. They, for example, reject the creeds of Christendom. Uh, and, that, and, and we see even in Mormonism that, uh, you know, as there's this, uh, this doublet uh, that, uh, that goes, uh, that as, as, as we are now, God once was, as God is now, we may become. And so basically there's no creature creator distinction. We can ultimately rise to the level of godhood that God, our God and father has currently. Uh, and so there are some problems with Mormonism. So, and they deny the Trinity and so forth. So there are some things that Christians have affirmed over the, you know, these two millennia that have been fixed and stable and that we ought to be very careful about, uh, you know, simply pulling away from because, oh, this doesn't isn't really in keeping with our own uh, modern vision. Uh, someone like uh, Richard Rohr, who does not see Jesus as unique, uh, you know, you know, he, he is a, a more pantheistic uh, thinker and has uh, abandoned uh, many of these key tenets of uh, Christian orthodoxy. I'd say this is prob a problem. You look at the New Testament, you see that there is a, uh, you know, a very clear commitment to orthodoxy. Uh, those who deny that Jesus is God in the flesh, First uh, John four tells us, you know, that this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Uh, you see Jesus himself telling the Samaritan woman that salvation is not that salvation is from the Jews. Uh, so he's not saying, you know, it's all basically the same. He does say the location doesn't matter. But it doesn't mean that doctrine 
is uh, is un, is irrelevant. And so, so he is basically siding with the Jews in terms of the revelation that they had, the prophets and so forth, that the Samaritans did not accept. And he is aligning himself with that. And so, uh, but but again, it's it's not as though he is saying. You know, you, you know, you can't enter into the salvation. Oh, he's obviously, she enters into that and, and he is inviting her to do so. But Jesus is also making some very clear distinctions. And he's telling even those who are critical of him, uh, like the Sadducees, uh, he says, you know, you are, he tells them, you are wrong. You are quite wrong uh, in denying the resurrection and the afterlife. So there are very clear doctrinal statements that are being made. And if there is someone who is teaching false doctrine, look at the pastoral epistles for 2 Timothy and Titus. Uh, Paul is very clear about the importance of orthodoxy. If you don't have true or, or sound or healthy doctrine, uh, it will lead to unhealthy living. It will be, it will affect your, you know, it'll affect orthopraxy. Uh, so doctrine is important. And that's why Paul warns the, for example, the the Ephesians in Acts chapter twenty that these these false teachers uh, and he describes them as these you know these ferocious wolves these wolves in sheep's clothing who will come and disrupt the faith of many so he is very concerned about false teaching that doctrine does matter and Paul says if someone teaches a gospel other than what I proclaim to you let him be condemned. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven preach something different from what we originally taught you, then, you know, let him be condemned. So there's a very, very strong language here. Paul rebukes Peter uh, in, in, in the book of Galatians because he starts to fall back into his Jewish exclusivism and abandons the gospel message of the inclusion of all Jew and Gentile in Christ. It's not as though this is Kind of a doctrinally porous thing uh where it doesn't matter we just, just what matters is just including one another no there's paul is also at the very beginning of that gospel is talking about the centrality of the gospel message and if you deviate from that it is a very serious thing so when we talk about inclusion sure people from every tribe tongue people and nation christ died for every uh you know everyone uh and so includes you know potentially includes all of them into his family but there are also certain things that are uh, that are again part of the narrow road that Jesus talks about that leads to life, and that is part of that is doctrinal, not just a, a moral lifestyle. And so, so when we say Jesus is Lord, well, somebody like Richard Rohr doesn't maintain the exclusivity and the uniqueness of Jesus. Uh, that's a big problem. He's going against what Jesus Himself said, uh, Jesus' own identity claims. Uh, so, if it's a matter of Okay, Richard Rohr or Jesus? <laughs> I'm going with Jesus every time. Uh, as 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 nice and uh, pleasant as Richard Rohr sounds, uh, he is misleading many. I was going to say, I mean, Richard Rohr is a name that comes up a lot. It came up in the conversation that I had with Rachel. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mean, just a few years ago, I was talking to a friend who was part of a woman's Bible study and she pulls out this book and she's like, I don't know, I'm part of this Bible study with these ladies and we started reading this book and I don't know, it just, it seems okay, but kind of off a little bit. And she mm -hmm. hands me the book and it's Richard Rohr. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, um, and I mean, I know people who've gone and worked for him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know mm -hmm. pastors who are Orthodox, 
you know, in their belief of Christianity who are quoting mm-hmm. him. What is the allure of Richard Rohr? I'm sure you've encountered this before. And what are some concerns beyond what you've already stated that you have with uh, what he's teaching people? Yeah. Well, I, I suppose, let me just say this. A, a friend of mine, uh, Douglas Groteis, has written a, a, very, a very effective critique of uh, Richard Rohr and points out a number of his uh, doctrinal errors. And you know some of those things that you had uh, mentioned early on that I, uh, I referred to Roger Olson, those things about inclusivism, uh, doctrine being played down and so forth. I mean, these are all very much uh, Richard Rohr-esque uh, kinds of uh, themes. And so while we could say, oh, is, is inclusion good? Well, sure, we all want to be included. We all want to embrace, be embraced. We all want to be loved. And God offers those things to us. So there's a certain grain of truth that is there, but not at the expense of doctrinal distinctiveness, not at the expense of the uniqueness of Jesus. Uh, and so there are, you know, when you think of all those things that are at stake, the things that Christian martyrs, uh, you know, gave their lives for the 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 integrity of doctrine, uh, standing up for uh, for doctrine, even when it'd be easy to go the the pathway of compromise and religious pluralism in the first century and beyond. Uh, Christians stood their ground. They were fed to the lions. Uh, there were people who showed great courage in standing up for uh, for Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, even when it was easy to just capitulate and and go the way of uh, of the pressures of culture. And and I think there's I think we've often lost track of our own history when we talk about Richard Rohr and basically saying, oh, those misguided buffoons who gave their lives because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, how? Yeah, I mean, we say no, there's something deeply problematic with a Richard Rohr who dismisses all of those things. And you know, yes, it sounds nice, sounds inclusive, sounds tolerant, and so forth. Uh, Jesus, when he spoke. Uh, did come across as uh, always accommodating people. Uh, yes, he was a friend of tax gatherers and sinners, but boy, he excoriated those religious leaders. Uh, he was one who uh, spoke very, spoke out very much, uh, you know, against them. But uh, you know, you know, and so Jesus was one who didn't just kind of do the tame thing, uh, and you know, he was one who was very, uh, very strong and uh, and 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 opposed to uh, kind of a Jewish narrowness. Uh, but again, it wasn't as though he said it kind of opened up the pathway to many paths of salvation either. Uh, so he was very clear that he is the revelation of God. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he'll be saved. Uh, I am the resurrection, the life. Uh, uh, you know, So we see that everything is focused on him. It revolves around him. And once we lose sight of that kind of a distinctive, uh, Christocentric understanding of things, uh, we will lo- we will lose our way. Uh, like I said, there are many things that we can say. Yeah, there's a grain of truth in what Richard Rohr says here about this, this, and that. But uh, but if you simply embrace the whole thing and say, yeah, universalism, uh, no to Jesus' uniqueness, uh, you know, yes to all manner of inclusion without any sort of uh, commitment to say biblical standards, Christ's standards uh, regarding marriage and so forth. Uh, we're simply following along with culture. We have no voice. We we lose our you know, the, the salt and light 
uh, you know, become uh, become uns, you know, savorless. They become savorless and 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 clouded over. Uh, so so Jesus is calling us to you know those you know, salt and light are impact words. And as we if we follow Richard Rohr, uh, you know uh, that that kind of an impact that Jesus called for is going to be greatly diminished and is going to mislead many. Mm. Well, I wish we had time to talk about the deity of Christ, which was another thing that uh, Rachel brought up that she wasn't quite sure about that. And uh, yeah. yeah, we did talk a little bit about Richard Rohr. And yeah. um, I know there's essentials. Uh, I would say the Apostles' Creed would be a great place to start. What would mm -hmm. you say, sure. Paul? Is that a good place to, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think that's that gives us gives to us a, a core. I know there's a debate, you know, Gigi has descended to death. Um, some people say hell. What does that mean? Well, there's a debate on that. But basically, yes, I think that's a good starting point. I would also say that when it comes to the deity of Christ, uh, we see very much Jesus is making claims that, you know, in, in Mark chapter two, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus is saying your sins are forgiven. Well, you know, who is Jesus to forgive sins unless he's God? Uh, or when we see that Jesus is, he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation 22. That sounds like God. Uh, that doesn't sound like, you know, um, just some, you know, a great teacher. Uh, Jesus says, uh, in, in what well, Paul says about Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you know, there's one God and Father and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things have been made and we exist through him. That sounds like the deity of Jesus. It sounds like John 1, 1 through 3, all things were made by him. Jesus is the one who is the creator. He was with God, the Father, from the beginning, and himself is called God. And Jesus says, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, so we see throughout the Gospel of John, we see who, you know, the, the things that are said about Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament, are said about Jesus in the New, that every knee will bow to Jesus. You know, Isaiah 45 says it, Philippians 2 says it. Uh, Jesus says that you know, we, we read, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Joel 2. Paul says about Jesus, whoever calls upon them, Jesus will be saved. Mm -hmm. We see that, you know, we, so we see uh, over and over again that where, you know, Jesus, you know, John the Baptist says, I'm, I'm crying on the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah 40 says, prepare the way of Yahweh. So Jesus is the one who is standing in the place of God. He is God's agent uh, in the world. He is one who, who, who represents God, who is the exact representation of his being. Uh, we see in uh, Hebrews chapter one, uh, uh, you know, again, Jude five, Jesus, who delivered the Israelites from Egypt? It says Jesus delivered the Israelites from Egypt and later destroyed those who do not believe. Over and over again, we have these repetitions of the deity of Jesus. This is something that is a steady drumbeat uh, in the New Testament. And we uh, and, and, and you know, there is salvation in no one else mm -hmm. except Jesus, Acts 4.12 tells us. Well, I thought, don't, can't God the Father just save and not Jesus? No, salvation in no one else. It's, it's, it's brought down to Jesus. Isn't that a remarkable statement? So yeah. I, I could go on, but maybe you a few nuggets for Rachel to, uh, to yeah. perhaps chew on. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Two final questions. Okay. Um, what did you mean? So I going back to that article you wrote in 2021, speaking of a steady drumbeat, you were talking in that article a little bit about the steady drumbeat of progressive ideas infiltrating the church, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um what did you mean when you said that the rise of progressive Christian values presents a call for gospel opportunity and evangelical mm -hmm. vigilance? Mm -hmm. Would you flesh that out a little bit here? Sure. And then I have one final question. Sure. 
Yeah, I think when we see people who are engaged in a, a, maybe a view of sexuality that leads to a breakdown of the family, a breakdown of how we under, are to understand marriage, uh, I think that this is also an opportunity for Christians to step in and to model what uh, a Christian marriage, a Christian family looks like, uh, to be a role model to others around us, to set an example, to take it as an opportunity to say, this is what Jesus calls to, and, and this is a, a wonderful thing, and see how it is lived out in Christian community. Uh, so it presents an opportunity in that regard. But it's also a matter of vigilance that we also recognize that uh, that when we talk about certain things like, well, apart from doctrinal issues, uh, we, when we talk about, say, you know, sexual ethics and so forth, it's so easy to fall into the pressures of society around us and to simply give in at, rather than being uh, you know, steadfast, holding to how God has revealed himself in both testaments about sexuality. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, again, so, so yes, being strong about these things, preaching about these things, and also churches to engage in church discipline about these things. Uh, so, so I think that churches ought to be teaching clearly about these things and reminding people, you know, we'd love to have you, you know, gay, lesbian couples, trans people, what, whatever, you know, you are welcome to worship with us. But on the other hand, when it comes to, you know, and, and kind of figure these things out as you listen to the word being proclaimed, as you enter into the community of God's people, you can interact, rub shoulders with them and so forth. But when it comes to, say, church membership, that's going to look a little bit different. These are the sorts of things that you work through before you say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Uh, and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and well, and also want to become part of this church. Well, if you become part of the church, but you're living in a, you know, you've got a, you know, there's, you know, you're, you're living with your boyfriend or you're, you know, engaged in a gay or lesbian relationship. Uh, well, you know, that's not, a, you know, wait until you become a church, you know, wait, you know, to work these things through first before becoming a church member. And we want to give ample time to discuss, to think these things through and so forth. So there's no pressure in that way. There's love, there's community uh, and so forth. But so there's a kind of a hospitality, although there is a certain line that is being drawn as well. And people can know that from the steadfast teaching, but also experiencing within a loving community. So those are, those are some things that I mean about the uh, kind of the opportunity, uh, but also the vigilance. Yeah, that's good. Now I have to ask you a follow-up question to that. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you quickly, because uh, we're running out of time here. Uh, Rachel has a sibling that's non-binary, mm -hmm. identifies that way. Mm -hmm. And I know that she's very you know, thoughtful person, mm -hmm. Rachel is. And this is this part of the conversation will probably trigger something. So I just wanted to ask a question. Mm -hmm. um, I've had people on here, and I actually agree with this, where they say, okay, we don't front load the gospel, you can come to Jesus just as you are. Sure, sure. Um, in fact, you said that at the end of that article, I keep quoting here or mentioning, you say, you can come to Jesus just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. how do we love people well, while still, and, and maybe that's a loaded question, mm -hmm. but if you could just give a couple thoughts mm -hmm. on that, sure. um, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that it's, uh, we, you know, we love people well, not by always agreeing with them. Uh, you know, in fact, um, there's one, uh, author by the, you know, Greek, you know, ancient, ancient author by the name of Plutarch who said, um, 
I don't, you know, I don't need a friend to just agree with me in all that I say and do. I mean, my shadow does that. Uh, a friend is going to call me to account. He's going to say, hey, you, you, you blew that, you were wrong, uh, or I disagree with you. That's what friends do. Uh, friends aren't simply parrots that say, yes, I agree with you every time. And I think we've, we are in a kind of culture where we've lost sight of what love means, uh, that love has a certain durability, even if there is disagreement of viewpoint or lifestyle. And to say, you know, we don't agree, we don't see eye to eye on the whole trans question, but you know that doesn't have to get in the way of our friendship. Uh, you know, I think that it's a, really a credit to a person's character if that person can say, you know, I have strong disagreements with that person, but we love going out for a beer. We we enjoy talking with each other. This person, I can depend upon that person. Uh, you know, that person's a true friend. So, so it doesn't always mean agreement. And I, I think that in, in the context of uh, the trans conversation, we can say, you know, I don't, you know, I, I, I hope that we can be friends, even if we disagree on this issue. I know that for many people, it's a, it's an identity crisis, but, but I think there's also a lot of, a lot of confusion in our culture uh, that a lot of messages are being sent that lead a lot of people to destructive tendencies that, uh, you know, and I think because we've lost sight of the stability of how God has made human beings mm -hmm. uh, in terms of male and female, that's a kind of a baseline starting point. And, uh, you know, and I, and, and being able to differentiate between that and say a, something that seems to be more of a social contagion, say, especially uh, in females, where again, the, the proportions are really greatly, uh, you know, out of alignment to what things were 15, 20 years ago, let alone uh, in terms of just, you know, you know, a couple of centuries ago, there's a basic, you know, so people may temperamentally be, <clears throat> you know, somebody might be more gentle, a guy might be more gentle and kind, more artistic and whatever, and may have certain quote, um, you know, what we in our culture think are perhaps more feminine virtues. I mean, my father, you know, seven children in our family, you know, kind of a, a solid guy. He loved, he was a poet, an artist, very gentle and kind, joyful person. Um, but, you know, you know, some people I think would have said, oh, you're a, you know, maybe you're a girl or something because you have more of these, mm -hmm. uh, you know, gentle characteristics and so forth. Uh, you're not that tough guy. Well, I think a lot of times our own culture sends messages about what is masculine, what is feminine, and they're simply neutral. And and yet yet these get interpreted into oh I've got to identify this way or that way, and you no know, some some girls are going to be more masculine than other girls. Some guys are going to be more quote feminine than other girls. But this is just a temperamental thing rather than a matter of sexual identity. And I think if we could see through some of those things and recognize you know maybe I need to rethink this uh, this this sort of issue. And when you look at the kind of troubles and dangers that people. Uh, get into, you know, I mean, I think parents need to be vigilant about their own children making decisions about their own sexual identity, uh, where they are 
uh, you know, I mean, here, just, you know, watching the, you know, what is a woman uh, that Matt Walsh uh, did, you know, where, <laughs> you know, these four-year-olds are, you know, believing in Santa Claus, but yet we're allowing them to make decisions about, you know, their sexual changes that will affect the rest of their lives that they can't go back on, you know, chemical castration and so forth. I mean, this is uh, astonishing stuff. And so we ought to be those kinds of parents that say, you know, I love you so much that I'm not going to just let you do mm -hmm. what you want with your young life that you simply, there are a lot of issues that you simply are not aware of. There are a lot of things around the corner you just don't know. And that a lot of the times this quote, sexual fluidity basically works itself out if you just give it some time. And rather than rushing to judgment and trying to come to conclusions about this as being, oh, I'm this or I'm that, sexually start with the baseline, begin there, you know, and, and you know, the, the, you're, how you came into this world biologically. That's a good starting point. We do that with every other part of our body, but we seem to have lost that when it comes to the sexual organs. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine, uh, Frank Beckwith, who teaches at Baylor University, he would show this video clip from ER. Uh, I've never seen it, but he he told me that, you know, there's this man who comes, you know, a spe fine specimen physically, goes into a doctor's office and the doctor uh, says, well, what can I do for you? The guy says, I want an amputation. I want my leg amputated. He said, what? He says, you look perfectly fine. Uh, he says, well, I'm a one-legged man inside a two-legged man's body. <laughs> and Frank shows this to his class. They all start laughing. They think that's ridiculous. He says, why is it when we are talking about any other part of the body, we know what those parts are for, but when it comes to our sexual organs, all of a sudden we're, we're massively confused. Maybe we should use that as a starting point to kind of build on. And of course, if there is a God who exists, uh, if, if if there is a morality that is not uh, relative to just the passing uh, views of culture, maybe this is a great starting point. If, if there's a design to our body, maybe we ought to look into that and kind of shape our lives around that rather than thinking that anything goes. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's itself a, a, a very anxious uh, and worrisome place to put oneself that I basically got to create my own sexual identity. Uh, you know, no, you've already come. With a lot of you know with a head start uh, maybe begin there and then see how things can work from there as you work through some of these uh, other issues of gender confusion and mixed cultural messages wow well paul i was not expecting to talk about that but i appreciate you uh, <laughs> bringing that <laughs> i wasn't either like sharing, <laughs> sharing all of that i'm gonna have to yeah. look up that clip yeah. final question i ask everybody i only have a couple minutes uh, to ask you this but the finding something real podcast is about a journey towards restoration Eternity, authenticity, and love. Sure. Real is an acronym for those things. Restoration, mm -hmm. eternity, authenticity, and love. All things that, as a Christian, I believe mm -hmm. can only be found ultimately in relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Which of those stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? Restoration, yeah. eternity, authenticity, or love. Wow. It's, it's hard to pick uh, from four wonderful, uh, wonderful portions of that acronym. I do think love is is very important, um, you know, and I, you know, of course, the Beatles sang, all you need is love. Um, and from a biblical point of view, that is indeed true to love God and to love others. This is the sum uh, of our duty. And I think so often we have forgotten to understand what true love looks like. Uh, if you, you know, in our culture, if you love me, you will agree with me. If you love me, you will affirm however I'm feeling. If you love me, you won't say that I'm wrong. And God loves us, but he tells us we're wrong. Uh, we are deeply needy. Uh, we need to 
align ourselves with reality rather than continuing in our own uh, harmful, self-destructive paths, that it is actually love that brings us out of that confusion. Uh, and when we align ourselves with reality, uh, with when we align ourselves with God's purposes for us, it is indeed the loving thing uh, to call a person to that way of thinking, that way of living. Uh, and it is actually a, a an act of disregard not to warn people, not to speak out and to say, you know, these are some danger spots. That's a doctrinal danger. That's a, a danger, a, a moral danger there. And to remind people that to, to walk in the way of Jesus Christ is a narrow road, um, but it is the one that leads to life. And it is because God is so loving to us that he gives us to us that narrow road rather than to uh, allow us to you know, go in whatever direction we choose um, because our hearts are deceptive, our hearts are uh, wicked. Uh, we are not you know, wise masters of our own lives. And so that's why uh, we are called to serve uh, our master in heaven, uh, Jesus Christ, to set our minds on things above rather than, think, rather than on things of the earth and to show our love for God in that way. And also to show our love for others by steering them in the direction of Jesus Christ, the narrow way that mm -hmm. leads to life. Yeah. Amen. Well, Paul Copan, thank you so much. Uh, did I just mispronounce your last name? No, I you did. got it right. Oh, I did. You got it right. You got it perfect enough. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.